0: Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, you, Anna. Uh, My name is Austin Lennox, I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and if I haven't met you yet, I'd love to remedy that uh, after the service, and uh, I owe you all an apology. Um, We try not to make it a habit of telling lies from the pulpit, and uh, yet Ben Winkler has led some of you astray to think uh, that there may be a costume involved in this morning's sermon, I'm sorry to disappoint you, Um, that's not happening, but... um Okay, look, I, I hope that y'all find this as, as funny as I do. Uh, there's this trend out there uh, on the interwebs. Uh, there may even be like a Twitter account uh, devoted to, to this specific thing. Uh, <laughs> but it, it's this concept of things that if you took them out of our modern context and like dropped them back into like the pioneer days, that it would give like a pioneer woman like a heart attack if they saw it. Um, man, that got a lot of laughter in the first one already. <laughs> So, so here, here's what happens, right? Like, 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 think about something that you just, you, it's always things like imagine taking a cool ranch Dorito to like 1723. Like, people would be like, their brains would explode. They'd be like, what is that? That makes no sense. Like, take, imagine taking like a 24 hour Planet Fitness and you bring like a 15th century peasant and you show them, like, they would just like have a heart attack on the spot, right? It's a, I, I think this is hilarious. I think this is a, this hilarious trend because what it does is it, 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 it takes things that you and I just take for granted that we think are just so normal about our lives and, and our daily existence. And it shows you like, just how insane some of it really is. Like, have you ever had a moment like you're in your car and you're, you're, you set your cruise control to like five miles per hour above the speed limit if you're being really good? And you just think like, I am in a metal box that's traveling like 80 miles an hour on the highway right now. Like, that that's insane, right? Like that's crazy if you really think about it. And yet we just do it all the time, and so the insanity has, like, worn off on us, right? Like, flying in a plane that's like a tube of sheet metal that is powered by what some people think is, like, you know, dead dinosaur bones. Like, that's ridiculous, and we do it all the time. And we just, people are reading their newspaper while they do it, and it's like, this is insane. Like, do you realize what we're doing? We've just grown accustomed to it. And so there's no insanity anymore. It's just, it's just old hat. And look, this morning we're, we're, we're approaching one of the most famous passages of the Bible. It, it's, it's been read, you know, thousands of times. You've heard it hundreds of times. Like, it's so intimidating. What are you going to say about it? And so and here's, here's the thing. I think that we have the same experience uh, that I was just describing with, with the manger, Right with the manger, the 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 thing that Jesus Christ gets placed in when He's born, it's just become old hat to us. It's lost the insanity. It's lost the scandal of what it really is, if you think about it. And yet Luke goes to great lengths to include it. Right? Like why include that detail? And if you think about it, it's not a very flattering detail. So why, why make a big deal? Why make a fuss and mention the manger at all? It seems like this embarrassing detail we'd kind of want to just forget. And so, and so that's the question. These are the questions I kind of had to, to answer this morning is why, why the manger matters uh, and to kind of reclaim how scandalous it really is. And so I just want to think about this passage in three ways. I, I want us to look at the intentionality of the manger. It's intentional. The humiliation of the manger, it's humiliating. And then the juxtaposition of the manger. And so, so first, the intentionality of the manger. If you, if you look at verses one and four with me in your bulletin, it says this. It "says In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Verse four. So, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Right? This is like when you go vote. You need to like, go vote where you're registered. You've got to go vote where, you're, where you live, You know where you're from. Um, continuing, verse 5. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Okay, so first, right, the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and not Nazareth, which is where Mary and Joseph are from, uh, it was due to this decree, right? It's due to this imperial edict uh, from Caesar Augustus. And so what all this means is is that the the Jesus being born in a manger, it's not an accident. It's not an accident. It's not like Mary and Joseph are just this plucky upstart couple who like figured out how to make the best with what they had. Uh, It's intentional. It's on purpose. There's a reason for it. Right, like What looks like arbitrary kind of political world history to us, if you pull back the curtain, it's actually God's hand at work in the world to make certain things happen. Okay, and here's why. He, God is taking Mary and Joseph from their hometown of Nazareth to Bethlehem so that this short, obscure prophecy in the Old Testament could come true that 700 years before Mary and Joseph, you know, heard about Jesus, were on this journey, that that, that Micah chapter 5, this this Old Testament prophet named Micah, he says this in chapter 5. He says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, a way of saying, you you are such a small, insignificant little town, from you is going to come forth for me, the God of the universe, someone who's going to rule over Israel, who's going to rule over my people. And so again, on the surface, these things that seem like political, you know, decisions that are determining where Jesus is born, like what we have to see is ultimately God's the one who's maneuvering all this, and and He's doing it to make good on His promises, to make good on His word, so that He tells the truth, right? And so He's literally moving an entire empire around. To accomplish his will so that Jesus is born in this specific place. We're like, Caesar Augustus has no idea that's going on. He's just trying to widen his tax base. He's just trying to, you know, meet budget for the end of the year for Rome, so to speak. Um, Mary and Joseph had no plans. They had no plans to go to Bethlehem for Mary to give birth there. Yet God did. And so you just have to think that Mary After all she has been told about her son and about herself, that she is this favored woman, that the Lord was with her, that her son will be great and called son of the most high. Like after everything that she had heard about Jesus, him coming in this way and at this time on this journey, it it just wasn't on the bingo card. She just didn't have that in her plans. Like she's probably thinking, surely this is wrong. Like something is not right here. Something is going awry. And yet when the shepherds that we're going to meet next week told Mary uh, that, that actually this is the very thing they had been told to look for, that for them the manger was the sign that they had found the king of the universe, that they had found their savior. And so at that point you have to think, okay, what an amazing confirmation for Mary that, okay, maybe this manger thing has actually been part of God's plan all along, that he didn't take his eye off the ball Right, that he didn't desert us, that he didn't leave us to our own devices to figure this out, that maybe, maybe he's actually doing this. Maybe this is actually part of his plan. And so God always fulfills his promises. He always comes through on his word, even if it's in ways that we just think, surely, he's not, surely that's not possible, that he is in this, that he's working in the midst of this. And so, look, the the, the implications of all this are are, are just manifold. But in one sense, what this means is that the chaos of your life, the the things that just seem so arbitrary and meaningless, the, the seemingly just reasonless suffering and pain and torment that you go through, seems like there's no reason, there's no result. This passage says that can't be true. Or that somehow in the midst of all the darkness, all the confusion, all the pain, that God really is at work. That that somehow he really is behind the scenes maneuvering things around for his glory and for your good. And it may take decades for you to see it. You may never see it this side of eternity. But it shows us God's at work behind the scenes. And so it's it's also notable uh, to see that Jesus is not born to the ruling class. Uh, He's not born uh, to to the Romans. He's not born to the people who are in power at the moment. He's born to people who are under power. He's born to people who are being impressed and and infiltrated. He's born to Israel. And so even here we see, we start to see the scandal that the manger really is. That the king of the universe is not born into power and affluence and esteem. He's born into subjugation. He's born to be under the control of someone else. And even this is intentional. Look, if what we're saying is really true, that he has really come to set the captives free, to free people who are enslaved, then it makes a lot of sense that surely when he comes, he's going to become just like them. That if he's come to set captives free, he says, okay, well, then I'll take the captivity. If I'm going to set enslaved people free, then I will have to take slavery. You you start to see this pattern. And so it's important to see that the manger itself is also intentionally mentioned, right? All these things could be true without the manger. He's born under Rome, right? Um, Different things like that. So it's important to say, okay, why the manger? Why does that matter? And so Luke doesn't shy away from it. He doesn't try to cover it up. He He doesn't see it as something that's embarrassing, right? Like, if you were trying to convince somebody in the first century that the creator of everything as you know it has shown up as a human being, if you were making that story up, I just feel like you'd probably say, yeah, and he was a Roman, and he was born in, like, the Ritz-Carlton over there, you know, like, the nicest place in town. Like, that would make sense. This makes no sense. There's no no majesty. There's no pomp. There's no circumstance. And so maybe the reason it's included is because it's true. This is how it actually happened. And again, rather than being embarrassed about this, worshiping someone who was born into a feeding trough, Luke actually says no, 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 this is crucial to understanding who Jesus is. It's crucial to understanding who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. And so, like we're about to see, the manger is intentional because it shows you and I just how low God's willing to go to accomplish his rescue mission for humanity. Which is a good segue into the next thing that I I want us to look at, which is the humiliation of the manger. All right, so if everything that's happening is intentional, it's not accidental, God's at work, he's doing this on his own, uh, the humiliation of the manger. right? This is the beginning of something that theologians throughout the centuries have called the humiliation of Christ. It's like this theological category that they've used to talk about Jesus And even that phrase, like, still makes me bristle a little bit. Like, the humiliation of Christ, like, that doesn't seem right. You're going to humiliate Christ, like, the one person who deserves to be, like, you know, glorified and honored and praised. Like, it feels scandalous to say that, right? And here he is. He's born in a manger, born to an unwed teenage mother, right? Look at verse 7. It says, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Again, this has countless implications, but here are a couple. This gives inherent dignity and worth and value to unwed teenage mothers. That God doesn't shy away from them. He's not afraid of them. He actually says, I'll pick one to be my mom. This gives so much inherent dignity and value and worth to people who are born into poverty, into just abject, horrifying circumstances. It gives value and dignity and worth to people on the margins of society who feel like there is no room for them in the proverbial end of the world. That God intentionally writes his own earthly story this way to include this, to include the manger. And what you see, again, it's not by accident. It's indicative of a theme that bookends the entire life and ministry of Jesus. And it's that he came to seek and save the lost. He is a physician who came for sick people, not to celebrate healthy people. That he is someone who came to call sinners to himself. It says that he came to serve and not to be served. Philippians 2 says that Jesus Christ, God of the universe, humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant. Do you see that the entire life and ministry of Jesus Christ is bookended by this theme? That the God who would be born into this world and laid in a wooden manger is the same man who's going to die on a wooden cross. It's the whole story all the way through. One commentator says the Savior's life, it starts really low it's going to end even lower, right? That this Jesus is going to grow up, he's going to become a carpenter, back-breaking, arduous, physical, blue-collar work. It's not kingly work. It's kind of servile work. Uh, This same Jesus, he's he's going to someday kneel and wash the feet of his own followers who are eventually going to betray him and desert him and reject him and despise him and leave him. Uh, This is a Jesus who suffered, both physically and emotionally. Uh, He weeps. He, he loses people that he loves. He gets called crazy by his family. Uh, it, it, it is almost as if the king of the universe says, okay, I'm going to write my story in such a way that there is not a single person that could ever feel excluded by me. That, that when I open my arms, they really can encompass anyone. Anyone. No matter what their story is, from, from the very lowest to the very highest. And so part of the scandalous nature of the manger, what makes it so scandalous, is that the Christ of the manger is the Christ for those who themselves feel scandalized. Like, if if you yourself feel scandalized by what other people have done to you or by what you have done yourself, like, he, he has been scandalized too. Like, the humiliation of Jesus is only really good news for people who have been humiliated. Because you see that he's been there. He entered into the humiliation for you. That when God writes his story, he says, no, I'm going to make myself like the lowly, not the wise, not the understanding, but the least of these. Um, I have two really lengthy uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer quotes that I'm going to read verbatim to you all this morning. And uh, this is the first, okay? This is the first. He, He says this. He says, look, for the great and powerful of this world, there are only two places where their courage fails them, where they are afraid deep down in their souls and from which they shy away. There's only two places, the manger and the cross of Jesus. He says, no powerful person dares approach the manger because that's where thrones shake. It's where the mighty fall. That's where the prominent perish because it says God's with the lowly. Right, here is where the rich come to nothing. Right, because God is with the poor and he's with the hungry. Uh, he, he goes on to ask, he says, who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? He says, whoever finally lays down all of their power, all of their honor, all of their reputation, all of their vanity and all of their arrogance at the manger. Whoever can remain lowly and let God alone be high. Whoever looks at the child in the manger and sees the glory of God precisely in his lowliness. That's how you celebrate Christmas correctly. Like, it seems so wild. It seems so foolish and so scandalous. Uh, But 1 Corinthians 1 says it this way. It says, we proclaim a Christ who was crucified. Right this morning, you could say, we proclaim a Christ who was born in a manger, which is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Greeks which means this message is offensive to people who are religious and smart and people who are not religious and not smart. Everybody hates it. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God, and it is the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Matt said a few weeks ago that uh, when kings enter the picture, it's never convenient. It's never convenient for us. Uh, they do not care about what's going on in our lives. Kings show up and they just impose their rule and you have to deal with it. But the manger shows us that King Jesus, he doesn't choose convenience for himself. Right? He chooses humiliation. He chooses to enter into the suffering and pain of existence. Uh, some of you uh, who know me um, well, better than others, know that um, I've recently gotten the itch, uh, the itch for European football. Uh, I refuse to call it soccer because now I am a fan of European football. And um, there, there's this show uh, that me and Meredith have been watching on Hulu called Welcome to Wrexham. Uh, maybe some of y'all are familiar with it. It's, it's the show on Hulu uh, where there's, there's this football club in a tiny town in Wales called Wrexham, and It's miserable. It is languishing in the fifth tier of uh, English football, which is just really bad. Um, it's like if the Grizzlies had to move. Um, this is no offense to this town, but like if they had to move to like uh, Como, Mississippi, and it's like, all right, we are the Como Grizzlies, and we're going to try to work our way up back into the NBA. I, I mean, it's, it's it's just it's really fraught. It's it's bad. They're they're languishing in that fifth tier. That there's little hope to get promoted uh, to the next tier. But then they get purchased. They get bought. Uh, and the two guys who buy this team happen to be uh, Ryan Reynolds, right, Deadpool, and uh, Rob McElhenney, which is a guy from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Uh, so these two kind of like A-list movie stars and TV stars buy this team, right? But they don't just buy it and, and rule it from afar, making decisions that are only beneficial to them financially, just doing things that benefit them, uh, they actually really enter into uh, the town and to the club and to the team. And it's just amazing to watch. They, they, they take visits to Wrexham. Uh, they get to know the players. They, they start to learn how to speak Welsh. Uh, they start to take on the customs of the country and the town. And slowly what starts to happen is, is these hardened fans who had no hope, these skeptics, start to become believers. They start to come around. They start to have some hope, right? Fans who were once very weary and cautious have become sold out. They become devoted, right? And it's because of the commitment of these two owners, right, to come to town, to get to know the fans, to spend time with them. Like, it created a real love for the owners from the fans, right? It created a real trust in them from the fan base, created a real affection for the owners to see them do that. My point is, like, the manger should do the same thing for us. That in our hearts, as we think about Jesus Christ and who he is, like, if you meditate on the manger, it just shows you, man, okay, he, he really is committed. He really does lo- he really might be for me. He might really love me. But the lengths that he was willing to go to save and to redeem his people from their sins, that he's willing to get dirty... To save people who are dirty. Like, the manger is it's only sweet and it's only nostalgic and it's only sentimental if your life isn't falling apart. Like Christmas is only good news for people who are living in just utter chaos because that's where Jesus enters in. That's where God chooses to show up. Look, I can appreciate a, a nativity scene as much as the next guy but we've sterilized it. There's no tears. There's no blood. There's no dirt. There's no terrified look in the face of the parents. Jesus enters into the world in utter chaos and darkness, in ultimate discomfort and struggle, and he does this not to just say that he's with you, but to show you that he is really with you. In the places of your deepest confusion, your deepest despair, your deepest hurt, you have to remember the manger. Look, I'm not trying to say that suffering is like glorious. Uh, No one's suffering is glorious. It is messy. It is painful. It is humbling. And yet God says, I can be glorified there. I can show up there. I can work there. It's actually where I do some of my best work. And so he has identified with us in our humiliation so that if we identify with him, if we will have the courage to humiliate ourselves and identify with Jesus, then he says, okay, I'll also let you identify with me in my ultimate exaltation. Which brings us to the final point. Right, this idea of the juxtaposition of the manger. Right, if the manger was intentional, there's intentionality there. It's not by accident. It's humiliating, as we just seen. Um, what's the juxtaposition of the manger? What do I mean by that? Well, juxtaposition. I know school's over, um, but literary class is in session for two more minutes. Juxtaposition is this like literary device, okay, uh, where it brings two things that are different together to like highlight and contrast how different they are, right? So for example, uh, all the stars that you and I see all the time are are still there right now, but you can't see them because it's light outside. Does that make sense? You only see stars because of darkness, right? Darkness has to come in so that stars become visible. Uh, Another one of my favorite examples of this idea of juxtaposition is in Frankenstein, uh, if you've read the novel uh, from Mary Shelley, there's this thing that happens where what, what, what the creature, what Frankenstein's monster does to learn English uh, is he reads Paradise Lost by John Milton, which is a like really old, flowery, kind of Victorian language. And so you have this weird juxtaposition where this like, horrifying creature is speaking in like flowery, elegant, like these and thys and thous. And it proves this incredible point his, his flowery language, like, highlights the ugliness of his appearance because they're so different. But it also shows you, like, the, the tragic nature of who he really is. <laughs> that, no, this guy's actually, like clearly intelligent, and yet he's being treated so poorly. So, so that's what I mean, this idea of juxtaposition, this, this idea of contrast. And so in, in many ways, the story of the manger, there are numerous juxtapositions, numerous contrasts. The first is what we just saw. Uh, not only has God become man to complete opposite things, he's done it in such a scandalous way. The contrast is so great between who you would expect God to show up like and who Jesus really is. And so the second big juxtaposition that I think we see is, is with Jesus and Caesar Augustus. Okay, so It's actually Jesus and Caesar Augustus, who you probably forgot about because he's in the first few verses. See, the Caesar in our story, he was the first one to be called Caesar Augustus. The Roman Senate voted to start giving them that title. And what that title meant uh, was to be holy and to be revered. And, and up until that time, this title, Augustus, it was reserved uh, exclusively for the, for the gods in, in, the, in the Parthenon, for the pantheon of the Roman gods. And so under Augustus's rule, he said, no, 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 we're going to make strides to show that, that the Caesars really are divine, that we really, we, we're not just men, we have become gods through being Caesars of Rome. There's this historian John Buchanan records that uh, when Caesar Augustus died, it said men actually had to comfort themselves uh, by reflecting on the fact that, well, he was a god. Gods can't die. So I guess we don't know what happened. (laughs) Anyway, it's just interesting that they think that. And so look, at the time of the birth of Jesus, at the helm of the world is this self-proclaimed God, right? This self-proclaimed Savior and Deliverer, this self-made God, and what Luke does, as this historian, this theologian, what he wants us to see is the juxtaposition of this man who makes himself out to be God versus the God who has made himself man. Right? That Jesus Christ, instead of asserting that he's God and trying to grasp at power and to grasp at strength, he empties himself. Right? The, the, the good news is not that a man can become God, but that God has become man. One tried to wield his earthly power to exert his will to act like he's God, and yet the other right uses this illusion of independence to bring about his own will. One man plays God; one guy's really God. Okay, there's another juxtaposition. It's when you compare the first coming of Jesus with the second, right? When you really start to compare the first coming of Jesus with the second coming, right? Because as we just read, the, the, the first it, it happens quietly; it happens in obscurity happens in this tiny little village. Only shepherds know about it, right? Plus some wise men, some animals. The second coming is going to be extremely public. If the first coming of Jesus was super quiet and subdued, the second coming is going to be extremely loud and incredibly invasive. Uh, The same king who has come to us meek and mild in the manger says he's going to come again. But that when he comes back, he is described very differently. And I'm not going to read this entire passage, but I just, want to, I just want to pick out a couple things that Revelation 19 describes about Jesus when he eventually makes his second return to earth. It says that he's going to be on a white horse, it says that he will come to judge and to make war, it says that his eyes are like a flame of fire, on his head are many crowns, uh, he's going to have this robe that is, it says it's dipped in blood. That the armies of heaven, that they're arrayed in fine linen, they're following him on horseback like this big cavalry. It says that a giant sword is going to come out of his mouth. He's going to strike down nations. And again, all of this is like symbolic language, but it's showing that okay, he's come quietly once, and when he comes back, it's it's not going to be quiet. This to be really loud. It's going to be with with force and with strength. Right? It's, there's major contrast, major juxtaposition between the two comings of Jesus. And so if you're one of those people who's been sitting on the edge of your seat just waiting, when is that second Dietrich Bonhoeffer, full quote, going to drop? Here it is. He says, look, when the old Christendom spoke of the coming again of the Lord Jesus, it always thought first of a great day of judgment. And as un-Christmas-like as that idea appears to us, it comes from early Christianity and it has to be taken seriously. He goes on to say, the coming of God, it's not only a joyous message. It is that, but it's not only a joyous message. First, though, it is terrifying news to anyone who has a conscience. And only when we have really dealt with the frightfulness of his coming can we really enjoy the favor of the first coming. So look, that's why we're about to sing Joy to the World Maybe you knew this. Maybe you're a a Christmas hymn buff, but uh, Joy to the World was actually written about the second coming of Jesus. It was written about his return, not his first coming. And so here's the invitation this morning. Entrust yourself to the Jesus of the manger before the Jesus of Revelation 19 shows up. Like, Embrace the meek and mild Savior who was made low to save you Before he comes back in all of his glory, in all of his righteousness, to truly and finally judge evil forever. But the final juxtaposition, the last thing that we see in the manger, is that since Christ has identified himself with us to save us, all we have to do in response is to identify with him and that God tells us that all he has and all he's done can become yours, can become mine, if we just put our faith and trust in this Jesus. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 says it this way. It says that God made Jesus, a man who knew no sin, he made Jesus to be sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God. Do you see that the gospel is just one massive juxtaposition One massive switching of places. The hope of Christianity is this possibility that that we who are dirty with our own sin and with our own failures, we have a Savior who has become dirty for us. Not only at his birth, but also at his death on the cross. And so the, the gospel is just one massive contrast, one massive juxtaposition. God has become a man. The only perfect human being to ever live gets treated like a criminal on the cross. And Jesus rises from death to life so that those who are dead could be brought to life. Isn't that amazing? So the invitation this morning is to embrace this Jesus now. Embrace the Christ of the manger. Embrace the humiliated Christ. Humiliate yourself. Express your need. Confess your sin. Do not feel like you have to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. He came for the dirty. Let him clean you this morning. It's exactly who he came for. Let this God who was scandalously born into the dirtiness of the manger take it all for your sake. That's an invitation. Let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the manger. Um, God, for myself and for my friends here, I pray... That just maybe over the next few hours, maybe over the next few days, uh, that, that we would humble ourselves. God, that as we think about the lengths that you went to to win us, to save us, that you have you made yourself so low, right, so that no one could be lower than you, so that you could save anyone. God, would you help us to meditate on that? Would you help us to take our pride and our vanity and our individualism and our selfishness and lay it down at the manger? to see the God who has humbled himself for us so that we might humble ourselves and just worship you and just love you and just bask in the glow of your goodness and your love to us in the manger. So in Christ's name we pray, amen.